Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so today we're going to talk, I'm going to talk mostly, and you can always ask questions, about T-tests. So, um, we did this just the other day, and we're going to find the probability of a given value of a variable. If the variable is normally distributed, you turn it into a z-score. You've done this before. We talked about it the other day. And I said, look, someone did the calculus for you, remember? So, this is something that's totally doable. You all have done it before, and you know how. You look it up in a z-table. Or you use that web tool that I showed you. There's a lot of ways to go about it, but they work. Right? Not that bad. It's something you've done before. You know how to do. You get the z-value, you look it up, and it gives you a probability. Right? You've all done this before. z equals x minus mu over sigma. Right? Right? You know that. That's all it is. It's a simple Z formula. It's not magic. And we talked the other day about why it works, because the whole area under the curve is one. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. So you look at the Z table in your business. You're done. You're, it's beautiful. You find the probability of getting some score. If the score, if, if the scores themselves are normally distributed. Right? Okay. No questions? Stuff you've done? Okay, good. We're usually not dealing with individual numbers, are we? We really are. And I talked a little bit about this last time. We're usually not dealing with individual numbers. We're usually dealing with means. We want to know, is this mean more likely to have to have happened from this distribution? Remember the thing when I talk about hypothesis testing, could both of these means come from this distribution? Those are the kinds of questions we ask. Another question we might ask is, why does it smell horrible in the hallway? <laughs> and I don't think anyone knows. I don't think there's a statistical way to approach that, but it smells horrible in the hallway. Did you notice that? Yeah. Did other people <laughs> I did. It's not just me. It smells just bad. It smells like an airplane bathroom. You know, after a long flight, and many people have been in it. So I don't know what's going on up there, and I don't really want to know. So we can't answer that question statistically. We can't answer questions about means. Yeah. We're not interested in individual values. Or hardly ever. When was the last time you read a paper and they said, well, the likelihood of getting a score of this uh, is that done. Uh, no. <laughs> it's not the way the world works. We care about means and groups, don't we? Right? So instead of knowing about the distribution of x, we usually care about the distribution of x bar. And I talked a little bit about this last time, remember, when I talked about the sampling distribution of the mean. So what we're interested in then is what possible values can x bar take? What values can x bar take? 
not what values can X take. And I know it sounds strange to, to talk about, because in essence you're going to get, what's the mean of the mean? What's the average average? You know, what the hell? The numbers don't know where they come from. They don't think it's weird. <clears throat> so we're just talking about the values that X bar can take, not the values that X can take. Right? Does that make sense so far? Okay. So the central limit theorem is the, the, the crux of this whole thing. And what the central limit theorem says is that given a population with a mean mu and a variance of sigma squared, the sampling distribution of the mean will have a mean of mu, mu sub x bar equals mu. See what that says? Mu sub x bar, the average of the sample means. Mu sub x bar equals mu. And a variance of sigma squared over n. As n increases, this distribution approaches normal, no matter what the shape of the parent population distribution. no matter what the shape of the parent population distribution. This is something we talked about last time. And when you think about this, the cool thing is it doesn't matter what the shape of the parent population distribution is. If we were to, let's think of the ultimate violation of normality. What's the least, and we have to have different values for the variable, so what? How about sex, right? Male or female. Okay? And we will score that as zeros and ones because we can't make it ones and twos. It doesn't make any sense. Because you can't go with like uh, a two for a, a female is to one, uh, that's twice the sex of a man, one. That doesn't make any sense. But zeros and ones make sense. We see zeros for uh, women and one for men. We're counting madness. And don't get me all started and all that gender shit. What I'm saying is white chromosomes. And I know there are people with more than one. I'm not an idiot. Yeah, what about this issue? No, no, no. I'm talking about just zeros and ones. So men and women. Now, what do we expect to happen? Um, in the adult population, it's 50-50, the sex ratio. Right? More adults, uh, there's a few more boys and girls. But uh, more little boys die than little girls before they reach maturity. It's just, it has always been that way. It's that way in any polygamous species, just the way it is. So, we get to adults, we'll say over 18, we're already at 50 50. If we sample from the population 10 people, what do we expect to get as our average score for sex? Zero for women, one for men. What do we expect to get the, for our average score? 0.5, right? Don't we? Right? We're going to get 5 men and 5 women. Right? And that's going to be 5 divided by 10, which is 0.5. <coughs> so what we would normally expect to get, right, is 0.5. In fact, we would get that more than any other score of those when we sample 10 people, right? Almost always we're going to get that. <clears throat> Sometimes we're going to get four women and six guys, right? It's going to happen. 
We're just randomly sampling. So that's going to be a score of 0.4. Now, intuitively, just think about this. How many times should we should get the same, that should happen the same number of times as we get. See, I said, so that's four women and sorry, yeah, that's four men and six women. We should get four women and six men, which is off. Right? That's score point six. They should be just as likely as each other, but less likely than 0.5, shouldn't they? Does that make intuitive sense to you? Right? Sensible. We should also sometimes get three women and seven men, and sometimes get seven men and three women. That's going to be a little less likely than four and six and six and four, and even more less likely, even less likely rather, even more less likely, even less likely than five and five, but it's going to happen. Sometimes we're going to get two men and eight women, and eight men and two women. Sometimes one and nine, and nine and one, and very rarely we get all women or all men. It will happen, but it will be rare. So, so it will happen, but it will be rare. Right? Again, does that make intuitive sense to you? And then what we get isn't that neat? We get a normal distribution out of something that is zeros and ones. But remember, it's not the distribution of the variable itself, it's the distribution of the possible means. And in this case, of size n equal, uh, sample size n equals 10. Okay? Does that make sense? Do you see what happened here? That's it, first is right. It was brand new distribution. <laughs> And weird. And if you don't believe it, there's something, if you've got a lot of time on your hands, which I know you all do because you're undergraduate students, what are you doing? That's a joke. You can do this with a coin. Flip a coin ten times, just plot how likely, and then you go, okay, five, so you plot five heads. Next time do it again, four, you get four, and then six, whatever. Do it 30 times and you'll get a normal distribution. It's creepy. It's a property of the universe. And in fact, there's really beautiful calculus behind this that proves this to be true as well. So you can demonstrate it to yourself. You can take it, me at my word, or you could go read a proof. And considering I believe one of you ever took calculus, and I don't think she's here today, that's <laughs> not going to help us. It is pretty neat, though. By the way, I want you to memorize that. Word for word. There's a reason for it, because it's, it's the basis of everything we will ever do in the course. And word for word is important because it's a mathematical theorem. Um, the only thing you could change is you could do it with standard deviation and standard deviation. That's fine. Because they're equivalent. So it becomes sigma and sigma squared, a sigma over root n, if you did standard deviation.
and like I said, there is a reason for this. It's not just me. How often do I tell people to memorize things? It's not the way I do things, but you kind of have to know this. Okay? It's not that hard. There used to be a guy in the English department named Dominic Grace. He's long gone, but um, another school now. But one day he was in the Shakespeare, and he was, he was quoting Shakespeare in the faculty lounge about something. I don't know why, to somebody else. And I walked in to get a cup of coffee. And he's quoting Shakespeare. I said, yeah, well, uh, given a population with a mean of mu and a uh, variance of uh, sigma squared, I just said that. He looked at me and said, see, we don't memorize stuff that often. So that's really all I got. What Shakespeare quote was he doing? Something you do, something with uh, Romeo and Juliet. He was writing a, a paper on Romeo and Juliet. I memorized something in grade 12. Glams thou art and coddle and shalt do what thou art promised. That's, a, that's all I can remember. <laughs> and there's something about the milk of human kindness in there. That's Lady Macbeth's Lady speech. I love Shakespeare. Shakespeare's great. Don't misunderstand me. I have no problem with Shakespeare. It's amazing stuff. Just one of the I never understood the point of memorizing. That was the thing that got to bother me. You know, Dominic memorized it because not because he was trying to memorize it. I think he memorized it because he was writing papers about you know Shakespeare. It just happens. It's pretty easy to because everything was written, so it kind of just passed. Well, yeah, yeah. It's pretty decent writing. It is, after all, you know, Shakespeare. If you're reading a lot of it, you will yeah. start to. Great stuff. No, I love it. I love it. All right. So questions about this? Does this make some sense what I did here? A little demonstration? Okay. Was that homework due last Thursday or mm-hmm. this Thursday? It's due this Thursday. Okay, thank God. So, the population distribution shape doesn't matter. That's really cool. You always get, the sampling distribution is always normal. What matters is random sampling. Uh, so this works with random sampling. You get the normal distribution of the, of the sampling distribution of the mean. It's normal with random sampling. Though it doesn't matter nearly as much as people think it does. Now, the math behind this, the calculus that proves all this stuff, is based on you doing a random sample. Fine. But you know what? You don't really have to. Um, it also works with almost any kind of sampling. It's really strange. It's a property of the universe, in essence. So you might hear people that don't understand statistics very well say to you something like, well, you can't use these statistical tests because you didn't do a real random sample. And your reply should be, you don't know what you're talking about. Because they don't. Because Monte Carlo experiments, which are basically what you do is you do... Um, you change parameters and you just do a simulation using non-random sampling and you still get a normal distribution. It's pretty. It's not as beautifully normal as it is if you use purely random sampling, but the probabilities don't change a great deal, so not enough to worry about. Which is wonderful. So to find the probability of X bar, remember what was the probability of X? How likely a score was. Then we want to find how likely a mean is. So to find the probability of some mean, 
That's probability of x bar. We just use our old friend the z-score. Just using z. We're just going to use it a little. What's going to be a, a, a numerator and denominator is different, but we're still using z. Okay? So it goes from, here's the regular z score, x minus mu over sigma, right? That's the regular one. And it becomes this. We're not interested in a mean, or sorry, a score. We're interested in its mean. So, well, the x becomes x bar. Central limit theorem tells us that the mean of the mean is the mean. It also tells us that the standard deviation of the sampling distribution of the mean is this, is this sigma over the square root of n. So you see, you might have thought these were two different formulas. And they're not. They aren't two different formulas. They're the same formula. All we've done here is we've substituted. What are we trying to find? Is it a single score? No, now it's a mean. What's the, what's the average score for the sampling distribution of the mean? Oh, it's the population parameter for the mean mu. Oh, yeah, I'll just leave that there. What's the standard deviation of the sampling distribution of the mean? Standard deviation. Well, it's sigma over the square root of n. So it's the same damn formula. We have just substituted stuff into it. It's not magic, right? And you probably, when you took 2126, you might have thought to yourself, oh, no, another formula memorized. No, it actually isn't. It's the same formula. We've just substituted something into it. So, for example, let's say we have 25 subjects and are given what we'll call an IQ improvement course because apparently they're gullible. And the IQ is tested after the course. They end up with a mean of 110. Wait a second, maybe this is good. Okay. So we've got 25 subjects. We've given them our IQ improvement course. We then test our IQs after the experiment. And we, give them, we get an IQ of 110. 110. Right? So it's a pretty standard kind of problem like this that you get. Remember, IQ of the population is a mean of 100 and a standard deviation of 15. Uh, why? Because we made the tests that way. IQ tests are validated every single year. They're constantly being validated to make sure they have a mean of 100 and a standard deviation of 15. It's just how they work. Okay? Whoops, sorry. Go back. So, what I did is I took, I, I put, I took, what I did is I took the first day with the new lips. I put z equals x bar minus mu divided by sigma over the square root of n, just like we talked about. 110 is x bar. Mu is still 100. Sigma is 15. N is 25, so over the square root of 25. 
10 over 15 divided by 5. 10 over 3, which is 3.33. That's a big Z score. 3.33. That's a big Z score. So the probability of getting a Z of greater than 3.33 is really, really freaking low. Uh, how do I know that? I didn't look that up at a table. Most tables don't go up that high, which should tell you already you can reject the null hypothesis. That uh, comes from uh, my calculator has a built-in Z function. Or it did until it, my calculator got broken. The calculator I had for over 20 years, and it was broken. And I don't know who broke it, but it wasn't me. It was my son and my daughter. I don't know who did it, but I'm not happy. And you know, the thing is, there's all kinds of apps in the world now that would do all these things, but it was my calculator for <coughs> graduate school. And now it's broken. It built in Z, it built in T, it did variances, standard deviations, and it cost me like 18 bucks. And now, okay. I'm disappointed. Again, I mean, I, I can download probably a whole stats package on my phone and do all this stuff, but, but I knew how to use that calculator. You know, you get that with a calculator? It's like, Oh, how do you do a square root of your calculator? Oh, you got to push inverse and then this and then that. And everybody's just a little bit different, right? It's not like a camera. You ever have somebody say, you take my picture, you get in the camera, and the person goes, how does it work? And you want to look at them like, well, you push the button, and it takes a picture. There really aren't a whole lot of things to worry about. If you've handed them this, like, you know, 35 millimeter or digital SLR, that's different. But most of us have a little point-and-shoot camera, or you got a camera on your phone and there's a thing that you like to push. How does it work? Oh, I don't know. You have to tell it to take a picture and then do a dance. <laughs> Moron. Just push the button. Whereas my calculator, everybody's calculator is a little bit different. Adding and subtracting are the same. But other functions are different. <coughs> That's a really unlikely set score. It's really unlikely. I think the IQ improvement course works. The only problem is that's bullshit. There's no such thing. But it's still, it would be, that would be the, the, the um, conclusion we would come to. Now, there's a problem here. And the problem is that we hardly ever know sigma for a population. Um, there's a reason in statistics classes you use IQ all the time. It's because it's one of the few quantities that we actually know the population's deviation for. It's so vanishingly rare for that to happen in real life. doesn't happen. But the expected value of sigma squared, of s squared, is sigma squared, right? I mean, remember we talked about that? It's an unbiased estimator of the population variance. The sample variance is an unbiased estimator of the population variance. So the expected value, e, of s squared is sigma squared. Well, that's good. So we don't know it, but we can guess. And we can guess, and we're going, to be, we're going to overestimate as much as we underestimate. It's an unbiased estimator. OK, so we can use it. We can just sub s squared in for sigma squared, or s for sigma, in the, in the formula. There's a problem, though. There's a problem. Um, now we don't just have a sampling distribution of the mean. 
So the mean can take various values. Now this, the damn uh, variance can take a bunch of values. We have the sampling distribution of the variance. Oh, God. And think about the variance. How do we calculate the variance? How do we calculate variance? Let's put the formula up here. We'll take a look at it. depends on something. It depends on the number of observations, doesn't it? Because the, the more observations, the smaller that quantity gets. Right? <coughs> Just look at it. I mean, we're dividing by n minus 1. If n was 2, it's going to be a lot bigger number than if n was, oh, I don't know, a trillion. <coughs> yeah, it'd be a pretty small number if n was a trillion, a pretty big number if n was 2. No matter what the hell's on top. Yeah. Hmm. It's going to depend on n. So what we have to do is we're going to have to somehow take that into account. We didn't have to take it into account. We did the, the sampling distribution of the mean. doesn't say that, does it? Anything about the mean? It says, no, oh, it's the mean. Don't worry about it. The, the, this is going to change, though. So we've got we to think about that. Got to think about that. So we can't just use Z now. We've got to do something that is Z-like. Something that is Z-esque. Something that has Z-ish properties. But isn't in fact Z. Okay, so we need something that is like Z. That isn't Z, basically. We use T. It looks a lot like Z, doesn't it? Top's the same. Bottom's the same, except we put S in here instead of Z. Or instead of sigma, sorry. But it's the same damn, really the same formula when you look at it. it, it it's the same quantities. We got a, dis, a difference between a mean and a sample mean of the population mean, divided by some estimate of the variance or the standard deviation, sorry, except we don't have sigma anymore, we have to use S. Okay. So that's not so bad. Now, T changes then depending upon the number of observations because S changes depending upon the number of observations. And to calculate T, you need S. And in fact, the change is not so much by n, by the but by the number of degrees of freedom to estimate sigma squared, by calculating s squared, to be more precise. Okay, look at this. To calculate that, we already had to calculate something else. Right? You can't just calculate variance. You have to already have x bar, right? You have to have it. You can't just calculate it without it. 
there actually is a formula that allows you to, but it's really just a, a roundabout way. It's called a computational formula. But really, this is the definitional formula that should tell you, I need to calculate that first. Right? You must. Okay, now if that's true, which it is, that means if we have any set of numbers, they all have to add up to a certain total, don't they? Because to calculate the mean, we need the total divided by the number of observations. So, this is kind of, this is a little bit, this might be a little difficult to get your head around. So don't feel bad and ask questions, okay? But it has to add up to a total. So let's say our mean was 20. Oh, sorry, that our mean was uh, 4. Let's go with 4. And we have 5 numbers. We can't change the number of observations. That that's what happened. But if our mean is supposed to be 4, and we have 5 observations, our total is 20, yes? Right? Okay. Well, let's make up some numbers that satisfy this. So we've got to add up to 20. Give me a number. You can't be wrong. Give me a number. 32. Oh, thank you, Christ. Give me another one. Well, there you go. Give me another one. 15. 15. Give me another one. 40. 40. Okay, now can you just give me another one, or do we have to find out something that makes this all add up to 20? Something that makes it add up to 20. So what do we got? 2 into this 4, and what is this? 4, 5 is 9, and 3, 1 is 4, 1 is 5, and 4 is 9, 99. So it's going to have to be negative 79. Because that has to add up to 20. You can give me any four numbers, that fifth number was fixed. Any four numbers at all. But that fifth number was fixed. The numbers can vary all they want. They can move all over the place. Except for the last one. The last one's fixed. The numbers are free to vary to a point. Then one is fixed. We have lost what's called the degree of freedom. The numbers can move around like crazy until we get to the final one. Then they, it must, it is fixed. We have lost the degree of freedom because we have estimated something. And the thing we've estimated is x bar. We've estimated a mu with x bar. We've made an estimate. Degrees of freedom, that's just the, the freedom numbers have to vary. And we have lost the degree of freedom by estimating the mean. Okay. That's, that's what degrees of freedom are. I remember asking that question in my interest. But, but what is that? 
It's beyond the scope of this course, David. What's the significance of losing the tools of freedom? Well, you don't want to. <laughs> well, no, no. It's, it's, uh, in the large scheme of things, what it does is that the probabilities underneath the T distribution change depending upon the number of degrees of freedom. In other words, the freedom the numbers have to vary. But the nice thing is, we know by how much. And that was because of a guy. In that case, it's by negative 79. Well, no, no. We've lost one degree of freedom. We have. Four, we had four degrees of freedom here because we had five observations. We've lost one degree of freedom. Um, and the guy that figured this out was a guy named uh, Charles Gossett, who worked for uh, Guinness Brewery in Dublin, yeah, Ireland. Didn't get the, wasn't, allowed, wasn't allowed to take the credit uh, in, under his own name. So he published it under the name Kurt Student. Yeah. And Gossett was uh, he worked in, in Dublin at Guinness Brewery. Which is quite, quite neat. Kind of a dream job working in a brewery doing statistics. It's kind of like, yeah. Hanging out in Ireland, doing tea tests, drinking Guinness. <laughs> Where do I sign up? Because I could do those things in my head while I'm drinking Guinness. So it's actually pretty neat. So what we end up doing is we then look up the probability... We look up the probability in a t table, but now we have to keep take care about the, the number of uh, degrees of freedom. Now, sometimes you might have pairs of observations. Okay. Now, this is x bar sub d, or sometimes you see d bar. What that means is the difference between two scores, and then we get the average difference. Okay. The average difference. See, that was cool. Don't you think that was kind of neat? Okay. So this can be used for differences between before and after. So we're measuring the same person, and we're doing before and after. That's something we could do. So let's say I'm going to give you, I don't know, how about a, um, some kind of test of some sort? Like, oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a drug to, to lower your blood pressure. So I'm going to measure it before. I'm going to give you the drug. I'm going to measure it after. I'm going to take before. I'm going to subtract after, and I'm going to get a different score. I'm then going to take the average of those differences divided by the standard deviation of those differences divided by the square root of the number of differences. Right? But you can also, that's individuals before and after. You can also use pairs of observations. Um, or you can match them. So when you match people, you match subjects, you match them based on some variable. Right? You don't just say, uh, we're going to take you subtract you, yours subtract yours, yours subtract you. You don't do that. You have to have them matched. You better have them matched for a very good reason. Now, because you know how normally, what do we do? You know, I'll take it 21, 27. Normally what we do is we randomly assign the subjects to groups. Because that is our friend. That is the best way for us to be sure that we have groups that are the same. And now we're going to ignore that. We're going to not randomly assign them. So we're going to measure everyone 
and then match them up on a single variable. You almost always match them up on the dependent variable. So let's say we were doing a drug kind of study. So let's say it's, let's, say, let's go with blood pressure again. And John and Valentine, you guys look like you're pretty relaxed guys, so let's pretend you're doing exactly the same blood pressure. <coughs> right? Pretty much the same. Very relaxed guys. So we say, we measure their blood pressure, and we say, okay, these guys go together. So we're going to give you the drug, and you uh, placebo. And then we're going to measure your blood pressure. And we take yours and subtract yours, and that's going to be one score. <coughs> right? And you guys, we do the same thing. <coughs> Match up, placebo, drug, subtract. That's two scores we've got. We've got four people, two scores. Because we've matched them on the dependent variable. Now they're different in every other possible way. The two groups, the, the placebo group and the G2 and the drug group was U2. Now you're different in all kinds of other things. If we randomly assign them to the groups, they'd be almost the same, wouldn't they? We know that from Cheryl taught you that in 2127. But now we think that it is so very important to match you up with an dependent variable, we don't care about random assignment. So you better be damn well sure that you're right. Because you could have screwed up everything else. You don't do this very often. You do it when there's a reason, and there's nothing wrong with doing it. Typically, this is used for pairs of observations from the same subjects. Often called um, a correlated t-test or a repeated measures t-test. Why do I have... Why does it say x-bar sub d and there's nothing else on top? Why does it say minus something? Well, because what would you expect the difference to be between before and after in the population? If there was no effect? Zero. Zero. Right? Because mu is going to be zero, so we just took mu out. Again, it's not a different <coughs> formula. It's the same damn formula. So technically what this formula is, is this. But the thing is, that always equals zero. Yes, I know. Sometimes you will see in statistics textbooks where it has little kind of assignment kind of questions, and it says, assume in the population the difference is four. That never happens in the real world. That's just done to show to remind you that actually that mu's there, but it's normally zero. Um, I've used this test before, and a lot of times, many of us have. Um, in fact, I think Dwayne uses it sometimes as a, a, uh, an exam question, or a review question about black cat chickadees before and after, and the percentage corrects. Yeah, that's actually, those are real data from my, my PhD thesis. That's cool. Yeah. So I used that test. I didn't say it was, could be 53. I said, no, it's, you know, it's going to be zero, the difference. Yeah, yeah. Is this only, like, the new... Only zero when you're doing matching tests? Matching or um, uh, 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 before and after the same person, yeah. And it's going to be zero. Theoretically, it could be 46, but it's going to always be zero, really. Think about it. Okay, questions so far? This is all stuff you've been through before. Except we've now, today, I think we've done about three and a half weeks of 2126 in about 50 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> what if your pairs aren't matched? Maybe your pairs aren't matched. And in fact, they almost always aren't matched. Your pairs are almost always not matched. Right? 
It's almost always the case that your pairs are just two groups that you randomly assign. That's typically what we do. And in fact, I would advise you almost never to do matching unless you're completely sure, or unless, again, you've got the same subjects before and after, which, I mean, like I said, that one that Dwayne uses as an example, they're actual data of mine, and I had these chickadees before and after, and it's four birds. Maybe you have two populations. That's, that's the, in fact, that's the alternative hypothesis, that because you treated the two groups differently, we now have two separate <coughs> populations. It, it may not be the case, but that's, we kind of hope, because why would we be doing a test? You don't go around trying to prove the null hypothesis, because you can't. So would two populations be like um, a group of high blood pressure people? No, not necessarily. All it would mean, if you, would, if you, if you think about the blood pressure example, instead of matching people, who just, if I give half, this half the room the drug and this half the placebo. Yeah, I'm, let's just say I randomly assign you to the left and right part of the room. Um, if the drug has any effect at all, now you're two separate populations. Right? Because you're different on some variable. That's all popula populations, you're saying there's separate populations but they're just different on some variable. Systematically, between the two populations. Well, then, then they, then the hypotheses are as follows. HO is mu1 equals mu2. I've seen mu2 six times. They're so good. Thank you. I never tire of that joke. When I first saw you 2 in 1985, I never thought that, you know, 25 years later, I'd be there seeing them with my daughter. That was pretty cool. They shut all the country all down. It was great. They said, oh, you can't drive in the street unless you're going to see you too. Uh, and that you have to be in a, in a special bus with a bus pass that says you too on it. Or you could take the metro. Cool. It was 80,000 people and nothing bad happened. Maddie said, what, what, if some, she said, what if somebody does something stupid? I said, it's a you too show. People don't do stupid things here. This would be like going with 80,000 of your best friends to go see something. It was awesome. Ah, it's a good moment. That's our null. Our alternative hypothesis is mu1 e doesn't equal mu2. Now, it could be that one is greater than the other. Let's go with the two-tailed hypothesis. I tend to use those unless I have a really damn good reason for it to be one-tailed. So those are two hypotheses. Mu1 equals mu2, or mu1 is not equal to mu2. Right? Okay. <coughs> so let's look at the original T formula for a second. It looks like this. T equals x bar minus mu divided by s over square root of n. That's our original T formula. That's the one that Gossett came up with. Right? I'm pretty sure if I was to compare the population into the stratigraph, I mean, that looks like something like this. That's my gossip impression. I figure he's kind of drunk and he's Irish. <laughs> okay. What is that? That's the statistic. Okay. There's your HO, right? Because remember, it's mu1 or mu. 
equals, let's say, 50 or something, or, or it's not equal to, but there's a mu in there. So that's always your HOs over here. <coughs> and then down here is always something about the error. In fact, we call this the standard error. The bottom part of a T test is called the standard error. So we now remember we got statistic minus null hypothesis. In other words, the parameter of the null hypothesis or the parameters divided by the error. That's what is in a T test, no matter what. <coughs> so if that's the case, let's derive what's going to happen when we have two groups. But do you see what I'm talking about here with these different little labels? Does that make some sense? Okay. So let's figure this out. Well, the two means, those are the statistics. Mean for group one, mean for group two. So x1 minus x2, x2 minus x1 doesn't really matter. Minus, well, what's the null? Oh, so what's the null hypothesis? It's about, we saw there, it was mu1, right? Minus mu2. They should be the same. Right? Well, what's the null, right? If it's that means mu1 minus mu2 equals zero, which means, oh look, it's, we should just remove that. It just cancels. So screw it, we can take it out. Technically, that's actually in the formula, but again, it always is going to be zero. So, fine. So practically, it's x bar 1 minus x bar 2 over the error. Right? Are you with me? You still. Will you still follow me into the gates of hell? What I, what I mean by that is when we get to analysis variance. So you then, this is still making sense, though, right? You see what happened here? This just some this turned out to zero, so we just remove it. So practically, it's this. Again, technically, it could be an x bar one or mu one minus mu two equal nine, but it never does. It only does in tricky questions in stats books. The world doesn't work that way. Well, yeah, you don't have to worry about it because the world just doesn't work that way. Technically, it's true that that's the formula, but practically, you one and mu two are supposed to be equal, and the hypothesis says it should be zero. So it's x bar one minus x bar two divided by error. You've probably guessed what's next. We got to do something about the error. Now, the thing about the error, you would think that. Uh, on an intuitive level, you might think, oh, well, the standard deviations, if the means we subtract, maybe we subtract the standard deviations. Uh, actually, we add them. Um, and it's variances, but. So what we have is we have, you know, for the first distribution for x bar 1, we have s squared 1 over m1, that's one variance. And the other variance is going to be for, the, for x bar 2, is s squared 2 over n2. Right? Because there could be different numbers of subjects in each group. What do we have here? 3, 4, 5, 9, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. So 9 people here, 8 people here. 
You got your mean and your standard deviation. You got your mean and your standard deviation. Right? So the variances actually have to be weighted somehow. Because yours is going to be smaller than yours because you have more subjects. You divide it by a bigger number. <coughs> so it's going to be smaller. Right? So when we weight things, we have to multiply them by something. So that's what we do here. I'm uh, sorry, yeah. Well, we, the weighting, in essence, is done um, by putting the two together over N1 and N2. This is one version of this formula. So really what we have is the same formula. We've just got different values for the statistics for the HO and for the error. But it's all the same damn formula. It's all the same formula. So all we're doing is we're dividing by N1 or N2 to weight it. And they were variances, so we take the square root to get the standard deviation. So our formula now just becomes it's just this x bar 2 minus x bar 1 all over the square root of s squared 1 over n1 plus s squared 2 over n2. That should look pretty familiar. We're not doing that yet. We'll get there. That is right, the last formula you had, if the variances are pretty equal. Um, there's a rule of thumb, is one variance four times bigger than another. Um, but if they're not, and in fact, sometimes people always use this one, we actually pool the variances, we get this. So we get a number that we weight by the two different values here. And the pool variance is, is just n1 minus 1 times s squared 1, n2 minus 1 times s squared 2 divided by n1 plus n2 minus 2. You've done this before, it's just pooled variance. The thing is, um, if the variances are roughly the same, this value for t should come out the same as the other value for t. Just think about it. If they're roughly the same, they should come out almost the same. Because s squared 1 and s squared 2 should both be this equal, and if we pool them, they should all be equal to the same thing. So if you had three groups, would yeah. it be minus three? You can't do three. Okay. Or four? You can't do four. Okay. You do two. Okay. Yeah. And that's a law of why you can only have two. Well, groups? how would you know? What would your know hypothesis be? If you had three groups? There would be no difference between three groups. Uh-huh. And what would your alternative hypothesis be? That there would be some difference between one of the groups at least. Yeah, and what, so how would you know what to put on top that it was like, was mu1 different from mu2 and mu3, or mu1 from mu3, or mu2 from mu1, or mu2 from mu1 and mu3, or mu3 from mu2, or mu3 from mu1 and mu2? No, see, there's more than one calculation you have to do. You'd actually have to do six. To do three groups, you'd have to do one 
and two, one and three, two and three, one and two, one versus two and three, two versus three and one. I give you all these different calculations. So you actually can't do it with just once. There's a way to deal with it, and it's called analysis of variance, and then you can do as many groups at once as you want. Many as you want. <coughs> By the way, isn't it nice the way they put this giant console here so you can't see any of this? Yeah. <laughs> isn't that, that's a piece of ergonomic awesomeness, isn't it? If it was pushed up a little and actually reached the top of the screen, it might make a difference. I wonder. Yeah, my... Yeah, maybe... I also like how the edges of the screen, you know, go off the sides. That's good as well. That's good as well. That's really, that's beautiful design. <laughs> you know, it's not as bad as over that new building over in BT where you go in there and there's parts of the building are falling apart and it's, you know, it's only 18 months old. Right? I think it was in Brain Behavior last year in that room. Is that right? Yes, yeah. yes, it was. Something fell too. off. The Something just fell off the side of one of the desks. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was that, like, I don't know, there was something. Was that light that was yeah. flickering? Yeah, kept getting scared that was going to work. Yeah, and then there was like a, a drill there most of the term. Yeah. A cordless drill. <laughs> and then at one point there was a coffee cup or something. Because that coffee cup I found that started to get more, more mold in it. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. It was like a science project all of itself. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably some of Brandon's experiments, probably all that. <laughs> Who will drink this? It's hard. So, the pool of variance, this will happen, and in fact, if, they, if, the, if these variances are equal, S2 and S1, this should come out exactly the same. They're not going to always come exactly the same, but they should agree with each other, have the same result, like it's different or it's not different. Very commonly, you'll just use this, rather than use the two different variances. How many degrees of freedom does this have? How many degrees of freedom do we have? Two. There's a two in it. Oh, Mandy, go ahead. Is it not just the bottom of the pulled? Yeah. Yeah. It's the number of observations for one plus two minus two. Why is that? That's because we have estimated two means. We've got N1 plus N2 observations. So in our case here, uh, 8, is that right? Yeah. 8 and 9. So we got 17. But we've estimated two means. So we lose two degrees of freedom. So we have 17, subtract 2. In our case here, we would have 15 degrees of freedom. We've lost two degrees of freedom. We've lost two degrees of freedom. So we start out with the number of observations in total, and then we lost two degrees of freedom. Now, which reminds me of the only statistics joke ever. This one, these two unbiased estimators run into each other at a bar. And one says, how do you like being married? And the other one says, it's not so bad as long as you don't mind the loss of the degree of freedom. See, it's not even funny. That's the statistics joke. There's no more. <laughs> statistics is a field for people that find accounting just a little too exciting. <laughs> a little too edgy. I'm not a statistician. I use this as a tool. 
well. I think it's fine. Just remember, we've lost the degrees of freedom. <clears throat> there are assumptions behind these, this test, the t-test in general. Now, there are always assumptions behind tests. Some of them you can violate. Some of them you can violate exceedingly severely. Others you can't violate at all. So you have to keep that in mind. It's okay to violate assumptions sometimes, some, some assumptions, other ones cannot be violated. Um, why are there assumptions behind tests? That's because there is a whole bunch of calculus behind tests, and when Gossett was developing this, he was like saying, well, assuming this, and assuming that, and assuming this other thing, then this is how the math works. So basically, the math line stops working if the assumptions get violated. Now, a test can be more or less robust to its violations, the violations of certain assumptions. Okay? And robustness just means the degree to which a test can um, withstand violations of its assumptions. You need a simple random sample. You can violate the shit out of that one. It really doesn't matter. The math says that, but you don't need it. You know why? You know why you need simple random sample? Because it's using central limit theorem. I already told you central limit theorem says it's mostly random uh, sample, but it doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be. You can violate it. Independence of observations that cannot be violated at all. Independence of observations means means if I know Yana's score, I don't know Danny's score. I can't tell Sophie's score by looking at Valentine's score. I I don't know. They have to be independent observations. If they are not independent observations, I have violated. The assumptions of the test, and I cannot do it. Okay? So that's one. You can't violate this. You, this is easy to deal with. You do it through research design. Right? That, that's easy to, to, to make sure that doesn't happen. Are those your scores anyways that you get your meaning from? How do you how do you mean? Yeah, the scores that you're going to get your meat from. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, but they can't really just guess them or just. Well, no, but they could be. But, but think about this. What if, for some reason, your score depended on her score? Right? Now, that may be because when she went in to do the experiment, because we did a poor job designing the experiment, the order that she did her stimuli in changed the order you did yours in. Or you did the same order as her, or somehow you saw what she did. Okay, so that's a violation of an assumption. That's a really important assumption. That's all, that's always going to be here in almost everything we talk about. So is this, but we can we can violate the hell out of that. We also are supposed to have homogeneity of variance. Um, all that means is that the variances of the groups are the same. You can violate that to a point, to about four times, that one group has variance about four times bigger than the other. Once they're four times bigger, um, we start having trouble. We start, that it, can, it is a violation. The nice thing is, violations of that assumption make the test more conservative. It, it has fewer false positives. That means it has more false negatives. But at least when you violate that assumption, you don't make a fool of yourself and say something happened when it didn't. It means you'll miss stuff that happened, though. And that's kind of a pain. But you need homogeneity of variance. You can violate that to a point. This cannot be violated. This we can ignore. 
even though the math says it's important, we can ignore this. We cannot ignore this. This we can kind of not look at it for a while. You know, this is like we can completely ignore this. This is like if you have this. This is like if you if you find, uh, hey, I've got a strange mole on my hand and it's changing shape and color daily. You go to the doctor because you have cancer. This, it's like yeah, it's just a, it's a regular old mole. I don't want to worry about it. I thought about that because I went to the doctor a few months ago because I had a weird thing and then it went away. By the time I went to the doctor, it was gone. But the nice thing is, I'd taken pictures of it. It was in my head. And I said, look, it was real. Going through them. She said, well, cancer doesn't disappear, so we know it wasn't cancer. I said, okay, good. That's all I wanted to know. Thanks, doc. I'll see you later. Because you see, if you look at me, you can see I'm pretty much a prime candidate for the skin cancer. I can get skin cancer from my lights. No, I hope not. <laughs> That's not true. You know, but you know, the sun, the sun is trying to kill me. That's what I'm telling you. So we can violate that to help. We can violate that to a point. You know, this we this is this is like this is like the law. We can't touch this. All right. Next time we will talk about statistical power. Um, when's the test? Soon yet? The first test? Isn't it a week from today? Is that correct? No, when is it? It's not happening. So it's a week from Thursday. From Thursday. Excellent. No, that's perfect. Because we'll do power on Thursday, and then on Tuesday we can do like a review. You guys can do a QA and a get some questions about the upcoming test, okay? Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, 
Also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.